Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. Joining me today is my former boss, Krishna Mamani. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Lafayette College's Endowment. Krishna, thanks for coming on the Macro Matters version of FIC Focus. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And I was your boss not once, twice. And that sort of t- tells people as to how talented you are if I hired you twice. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Krishna. I appreciate that. And you were one of my mentors for sure, um, 20 odd years ago, which uh, dates us a little bit, I, I suppose. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your your role now versus in the past. So so in the past, you were a, a credit strategist, you were a mortgage strategist in a former life as well. Then you moved to the, to the buy side where you're the chief investment officer at uh, Oppenheimer Funds, which is now um, uh, now purchased by Invesco, and and now you're um, managing an endowment for a uh, for, for a college. What, what's the biggest differences between the analysis that you did? You know, firstly on the sell side with 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 me and and with others, um, and then moving to the buy side and and helping to manage assets directly. Well, so I, I think uh, if you think about it, the underlying drivers of asset prices are essentially the same. So it's the same raw material that you work with. However, the the biggest difference is in the tenor of your analysis. That is, when you are on the sell side, what you're focused on is what happens today, tomorrow, this month, this quarter, six months. That's pretty much it because you have the the focus is far more transactional. Uh, on the on the buy side, when you're managing a mutual fund uh, and and you have lots of different strategies, the tenor is somewhat longer, but it is still not. <clears throat> you're making investments in the public markets, for example, and whatever your viewpoint is, you can change that relatively quickly. There's a cost associated with it, but it is relatively quickly. I think the difference between manage uh, the buy side, a mutual fund company versus endowment is your investment horizon is much much longer. That is both a, a, a challenge and an opportunity. So if you if you if you uh, take the circumstance today. So Fed is certainly an issue, and uh, what happens in the markets today, this year, would be very, uh, very much driven by what the Fed is going to do or what the other central banks are going to do. But for us, it's really a much longer investment horizon. You know, we, we are uh, an endowment is a perpetual vehicle. And when we do our asset allocation, make our investment decisions, they are driven by how things are going to be in three years time, five years time, 10 years time. And recognizing that if you are going to take liquidity risk, which we do in spades uh, through private vehicles, uh, recognizing that um, you you, you are going to be locking up your money for a long period of time, so you better be right and you better generate meaningfully higher returns than what you could do in the public markets. I think that the tenor is really the biggest difference. The underlying drivers are essentially the same. And then is the 
is the asset class decision a little bit different? So we've talked about in the past, and and most investors who listen to this podcast will understand that your your asset class selection will matter more for your returns than your security selection, right? Generally speaking, um, you know, in in picking asset classes in the longer term, um, you know, is that the decision? Um, does it take a lot more time and effort because there's less information about whatever investment you're you're making or um or, or not right like what's the what i guess in in terms of process because you're you're talking about things like private investments you know maybe it's hedge funds maybe it's real estate or or something else um you know is there is the process significantly different than looking at you know say the investment grade corporate bond market which was your specialty for a long time Sure. So I, I think uh, uh, the uh, the opportunity set in an endowment is definitely much bigger than it would be for a single strategy, either managing corporate bonds or global equities. Uh, so if, you know, we as an investor can invest in public vehicles, private vehicles. We can lock things up for a day. We can lock things up for ten years. So that gives you a lot more flexibility. So uh, from from that standpoint, uh, the the opportunity is definitely bigger uh, and your uh, your value add therefore is bigger having said that uh, you, you, your point with respect to uh, difference in approaches and difference in processes is is very very critical and and that is driven one by how do you construct a portfolio when uh, when you're making investment decisions that are going to be out you know 10 years out and you don't really know uh, you know how things are going to be in years time uh, let alone how things are going to be in 10 years time so that makes us far more focused on the long-term outlook, so the drivers of the underlying economy, the return structure, what are going to be the drivers of that return, that is that becomes far more important. And your your other point was is is actually probably the most important one, which is asset allocation is critical. So if you look at you know five-year, ten-year, fifteen-year, twenty-year returns for endowments. What you find is that the, the entire alpha that they generate relative to their strategic asset allocation really has been driven by one and one thing alone, which is a significantly higher allocation into privates in an environment of low interest rates and therefore potentially low, um, uh, low uh, public market returns. Allocation into privates and in size really has been the primary driver. And to some extent, uh, you know, if, uh, if the performance outlook uh, 10 years out, the, you know, the growth outlook for the world, you know, if you take out the inflationary period that we are dealing with right now, hasn't really changed materially, at least in my judgment. That is the, the secular stagnation drivers that we were focused on for the past 10 years are probably come back to uh, to haunt us for the next 10 years. So if you are a long-term investor, you have to keep that in mind and recognize that public markets will only provide you certain amount of re returns, especially given the growth outlook and where valuations are, and therefore allocating to privates and, uh, and kind of Clipping that liquidity premium is going to be paramount, and uh, you know that is that is something that um, endowments know a lot about, and uh, they have been able to execute. One final point in this regard uh, is manager selection is far more important uh, for endowments than perhaps it is for uh, uh, public market investments for two reasons. 
Uh, one, the asset classes, so take privates, for example, the dispersion of returns between good managers and bad managers is meaningfully, meaningfully higher than what it is for public markets. Uh, you know, the difference between PT an ETF and a top quartile global equity manager is is meaningful, but the difference between a median uh, private equity manager versus a top quartile private equity manager, let alone venture manager, that is extraordinarily large uh, relative to the level of return. So finding the right managers, getting in with them early and staying with them for a long period of time is a critical component of investing in endowments. So let's turn to some of that valuation issue. So, so you, I think, have a different view than uh, many in the markets, where you know you're looking at that secular stagnation uh, kind of component. Do, do you see that being secular stagnation in the the stagflationary environment, where inflation is going to be higher than it has been, say, the last 20 years or so, um, with uh, with real growth very low, but but nominal growth potentially higher, or do you see the deflationary um, environment coming back like we had recently where nominal growth is uh, you know back in the you know two or two and a half percent range for uh, for the foreseeable future you know I, I think that that's a an interesting take because um, th there is this market narrative out there that we have turned and that the the you know nominal growth is going to be higher and it's really the mix between inflation and and real growth that that's going to shift going forward and uh, um, maybe that's Hopeful and uh, so so so. What, what's your take on that? And, and one of the reasons why you think we will have this secular stagnation? Well, so the the, the drivers of secular stagnation were, uh, you know, if you kind of simplify things, it was technology, demographics, and globalization. Those were, you know, uh, uh, those were the three primary drivers. And you know, if you kind of take COVID shock out of the picture. Uh, uh, you know, those things have maybe have changed a little bit, but the drivers really have not changed uh, that much. So, you know, cl clearly because of Ukraine and uh, other uh, geopolitical issues, globalization uh, may not be as big a driver as it was perhaps in the early 2000s or even in the early uh, early teens. But I don't think the assertion that globalization is uh, going away is really backed up by the data. It, it may not come from China. It may it may the the sources of goods and services may not be from China, but it may come from India. It may come from Vietnam. It may come from Bangladesh. If you look at the data, you know the the overall even through the COVID shock. Uh, overall level of exports out of EM really has not uh, has not moved that much. I think, uh, and and technology and demographics, those things are constants. Nothing has changed on that front. The real issue is globalization, and and if if things are going to change dramatically uh, uh, dramatically on that front. And if you if if you again simplify things, the driver of globalization uh, really were two things. One, uh, you. The willingness of the U.S. to run a constant tra trade deficit in perpetuity, and I don't think that is changing anytime soon. And the second was uh, China's level of consumption being meaningfully lower than than its overall level of income. That is, they were effectively using uh, uh, suppressing consumption to subsidize exports. 
And that is exactly the same thing that they are doing today. If globalization outlook is going to change, it is going to change because either the U.S. policy changes meaningfully or Chinese policy changes meaningfully. I don't see that happening. So, yes, the impact of globalization and driving down uh, or disinflation or uh, 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 the impact is going to be lower going forward. However, saying that uh, as a result, rates are going to be meaningfully higher than where, where they have been, you know, they will be high. They're not going to zero again, but the, the likelihood that they go to 4% or 5% and stay there for a long period of time, I don't think that's in the cards as well. In terms of the current stagflationary environment, you know, if you look at the surveys, expectations for future uh, inflation has already gone down and has gone down meaningfully. So again, a, a transient or transitory is a bad word these days, but you know, if you kind of put it in the context of the largest shock that we have gotten in the world in a long time, COVID, I think that impact will take some time to fade, but eventually it will fade. So, so then, in in the shorter term, and I know that you know you have a much longer time horizon than you used to when you when you manage money, but th then over the next you know say three to five years, right? So a more medium to to slightly longer term horizon, wh where do you see asset classes are doing well? You know, in, in our market, obviously this year is going to be the worst year for Treasuries in history. It's the first time we're going to have back to back losses for the Bloomberg Treasury Index. Um, is you know. Certainly, our expectation is for positive returns next year, but but are there sectors that look particularly cheap on the historical valuation perspective that you think will do well if that secular stagnation uh, framework that you just laid out comes to pass? So I, I think you you sort of uh, uh, answered the question uh, yourself, which is I think the return characteristics for bonds is going to be meaningfully better than what what was going to be the case based on the level of rates in 2000, uh, 2020 and 2021. The rates were so low that even if you earned your coupon, it wouldn't matter much. And uh, it, you know there was uh, there was only one way for rates to go. Uh, you know negative rates in the U.S. were definitely may have been possible, but they were weren't going to be very likely because uh, the the structure of the economy is very different than the uh, Europeans and Japanese economies. So uh, uh, the the returns of bonds would have been meaningfully lower if nothing had changed for a long period of time. What we have after the COVID shock and the kind of normalization of rates, I think for a short period of time, uh, bonds will probably provide very good returns. Uh, as inflation comes down and as the the Fed is successful in uh, in toning down the strength in the economy and the strength in the uh, labor market, inflation normalizes. That will lead to really good returns um, uh, for for bonds for an extended period of time. And the other uh, other thing to be mindful of, even if rates come down, they probably won't come down as much as they had from, let's say, 2018 uh, to 2021. Uh, due because you know, unless you expect a COVID shock, which uh, you know, which is a different matter altogether, or something like COVID, um, without a shock, rates are probably going to remain. Uh, less volatile and less volatile, especially on the downside, uh, than they have been in the past over the last two, three, four years. 
Great. So, you know, last last question, I guess, is there other other asset classes out there that you think are have, you know, revalued enough to make them attractive? You know, a lot of people obviously talking about equities being down 20 percent and some people saying, oh, if the Fed does hike another 125, 150 basis points that they're, you know, in for even a rougher ride. Um, you know, where, where I guess at the moment would you uh, kind of put the most caution for the next couple of years? Well, so I, I think U.S. U.S. equities, and for that, you know, other parts of the world has corrected more. But U.S. equities, it, it's I'm very hard pressed to say that um, in the current environment, their valuations are cheap. They may get there, uh, but uh, the way they get there is either profitability is going to be meaningfully higher, which uh, which is difficult in the current regime, uh, or markets go down. And I think uh, it, it's it's fair to say that the likelihood is more that uh, markets go down. Down uh, at least in the near three to six month period, then the fact, then the likelihood of profitability getting better and the rates getting lower enough uh, for valuations to improve. So I think U.S. Uh, U.S. equity markets and for that matter, global equity markets uh, remain very vulnerable. And there is a substantial risk that for next three five years, as we uh, as it happened coming out of the Second World War and that shock, uh, uh, that economic shock. Uh, that we tread, we basically remain in this pattern without meaningful returns out of beta for some time. Uh, that that I, I think the likelihood of that is probably higher than what people think. In that sort of an environment, I would again argue private investments and your ability to capture that liquidity premium and um, and that that can add significant amount of value so from our portfolio perspective what we are focused on is increasing we had a um, we had a fairly low uh, allocation in privates when uh, when i came on board and we have been focused on increasing that allocation uh, given where valuations are we want uh, we feel pretty comfortable that that allocation will probably provide the best level of returns over the next uh, next 10 years for the endowment Great. That was Krishna Mamani. He is the Chief Investment Officer for the Lafayette College Endowment. Krishna, thanks for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now we turn to our Fun Fed Fact segment with Angelo Manolatos. Angelo, the Federal Reserve met yesterday. They hiked interest rates by 75 basis points. They are going to uh, hike interest rates more. The question is how much more. Uh, certainly the hint was at least another 125 basis points or so, maybe 100 or 125 this year, another 25 to 50 next year. Um, you know, what Fun Fed Fact do you have and can you glean out of the meeting yesterday? Yeah, so I think, you know, everyone, the question was yesterday, like, how can the Fed be hawkish um, and only go 75 basis points? And I think they answered that at uh, 2 p.m. yesterday by, you know, tremendously revising up those dots and keeping them high for quite some time, um, you know, pushing back on that market narrative of, you know, the Fed getting to their peak policy rate and then cutting within you know, three to six months time. So I think that's that was really interesting. And what really stood out to me when I saw the dot plot was that concentration of of hikes in 2023 with effectively, you know, three camps in the FOMC all at levels that were pr pretty much at or above the FOMC's uh, sorry, the market's uh, implied policy peak. Um, so you have and you also have a camp that is 
closer to that Bloomberg economic scenario. So you have several dots up there. I think it's six dots uh, near 5% at, at the upper end of the band. So a really strong message from, from the chairman, a really strong message from the SEP, uh, which a lot of participants were saying was going to actually uh, potentially go away at some point. But uh, in, in, that being the dot plot, uh, not participants, sorry, a lot of market participants were implying that they uh, they think the dot plot could could be on its way out. Um, but I think I think Powell has actually given the dot plot more importance uh, in this hiking cycle. And intermeeting when there is not a dot plot, he actually refers to it uh, much more often. Yeah, so the dot plot, my take is that it is a signaling tool, right? It always has been and always will be. And at some point, it has more or less importance because there's more or less signaling um, uh, signaling outcomes that that are are from the dot plot itself. And I think that that's one of the one of the challenges is is that the the dots are almost never right on uh, you know in an ex ante um, in. in uh, Outlook. So, you know, obviously they, you know, increased the number of dots. They've actually, they're actually uh, interest rates are above where the dots were back in back when they did the SEP in the spring, right? So, so you have this, you know, th this weird dynamic where people don't believe the dots, but at the same time, I think in an environment like this, it is an important signaling tool and and maybe something that people can point to in terms of, you know, what is the overall sentiment. So, what I found interesting in the dot plot was the 2024 and 2025 dots and the massive dispersion now in the outlook by some members. So there are a number of members who think that, you know, we're going to be in a recession in 2024, 2025, and they're going to have to cut interest rates aggressively. And then there's others who um, think that the glide path lower in rates will be much more gradual. And of course, you can take those much more with a grain of salt. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't even forecast 2025 interest rates for a reason, right? There's a reason we only go out two years um, in, in terms of our own forecast for, for Treasury yields. Um, but the uh, but but the fact that you do have that big dispersion, I think, does show that you know that everyone wants to fight inflation now, but there uh, there's much uh, less consensus among the members of the committee as to what the path is going forward. And and uh, you know the, those ones at the top who think that they're only going to cut interest rates a couple of basis points, you know, two, two or three times in 2024 after hiking them up to five percent or or um, is. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because that would be like kind of a mid-cycle tweak. Um, the, the other important thing that I think came out of the meeting yesterday was the, this idea that the Federal Reserve will hike and then stay on hold for a long period of time. And uh, historically speaking, the Federal Reserve tends to hike and then within six months to, to nine months starts to then cut interest rates. Um, they don't normally keep interest rates at, at a higher you know, at, at whatever the terminal rate is. And both the dots as well as Jay Powell during his press conference mentioned um, several times that they intended on keeping interest rates, you know, at the at that terminal rate and and keeping it. And so one of the interesting things to me is keeping it at the terminal rate, making a commitment to do that might be similar to actually hiking a couple of times, because just from a signaling standpoint, you're going to keep short end interest rates higher than they would be if the market started to price for early cuts, number one. And number two, it allows quantitative tightening kind of to, to continue to move through the market and will allow them to adjust 
the amount of, uh, of bond purchases that they do at some point um, as you reach the what we have often referred to as a reserve tipping point. So getting to this point where bank reserves are low enough that um, that, that basically the funding markets start to get a little bit squishy, similar to what happened in uh, September of 2019. And, um, you know, some, some of our, um, some of our colleagues and friends at, at other banks have done some work on, on, um, on that and suggest that we're probably within, uh, six to nine months of, of getting to that reserve tipping point. Um, we, we, uh, you know, we're probably on the longer end of that time, uh, of, of that time horizon. Um, but nonetheless, we're looking at sometime in, in 2023 that the Federal Reserve will have to adjust its, uh, um, its quantitative tightening program one way or the other. And it's hard to do that probably while they're still hiking. Um, Angelo, I, I went on there a little bit on a tirade, on a, well, rant, I guess. Um, any other fun Fed fact for us this week? Yeah, so the, the as always, the press conference is full of, of some small gems. So I'll give two quick ones. Um, something we were looking looking for was any discussion on you know the potential for uh, active uh, quantitative tightening uh, versus the passive approach that the Fed use, is using in this cycle and the last cycle. And to that uh, question about mortgage-backed security sales, Jerome Powell said uh, that's not something they're thinking about right now. Once the balance sheet is well underway, uh, but it's definitely not something they're considering in the near term. Um, so mortgage-backed security sales pretty much tabled for this year, probably into next year as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, the way I see that is the Fed doesn't want to go into a foreign domain. So they're comfortable with their, I don't even know if they're comfortable with, but they're relatively comfortable with passive balance sheet runoff. Uh, but, you know, the thought of, you know, active sales uh, is is definitely um, something that they they would take a lot of time to implement. And I think the the second thing was, you know, the discussion, uh, and it's been getting a lot of uh, a lot of uh, debate, and uh, right now is the discussion around shelter inflation. So that was also uh, I thought a good question, and that was actually towards the end of the press conference. And uh, and it, that's you know there's a there's a lag with uh, the shelter inflation that goes into both CPI and then also the PCE that the Fed looks at. And Jerome Powell basically said that. Yeah, we know it's going to be high, and we're going to assume it's going to be high for a while. So he didn't really talk about, uh, you know, potentially peaking out, but rather continuing to stay high. Um, so the Fed, the Fed is aware that there is a lag in OER. They they know that they know that it's going to play a little bit of catch up to private measures. It doesn't need to equal what the private measures have increased at, but it is interesting, and they are definitely well aware, that, and they do expect it to continue to increase at a relatively rapid rate. That's great. Well, we are at time. Angelo Monolatos, thank you very much for coming back on the FIC Focus podcast. Thank you for having me. On behalf of Angelo and Krishna Mamani, I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear us talk to on this podcast or you have any ideas for subjects you'd like us to hit on, uh, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can IBS or get our research at BI Rate N at uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal. With that, until next time, be well. <laughs>